0: Thank you. Good morning. Have you been to the Hard Rock Cafe? How many of you been to the Hard Rock Cafe? I mean, there's more than one Hard Rock Cafe. Maybe you haven't all been to the same one, but you've been to one of the establishments called the Hard Rock Cafe. I don't think there's one in Visalia. How about Fresno? No. Bakersfield? No. What's that say about the Central Valley? Well, when Shelley and I lived in the San Francisco area, there was a hard rock cafe near to us. For those of you who have not been to a hard rock cafe, it's all about hard rock, (laughs) and there are pictures and memorabilia, hard rock bands, hard rock music, hard rock memorabilia, autographs and pictures and guitars hanging on the wall. Do you know what the mission statement or slogan of the Hard Rock Cafe is? Does anybody know? Love all. Serve all. Love all. Serve all. I think it reflects an unconscious influence of the New Testament and the early church, early Christianity on the culture, that has become a continuous influence down through the march of history so that today we can utter things that go right back to Jesus Himself and the early Christians, and it's just kind of part of the cultural air we breathe. And we do we don't realize Wow, that that goes back to Christ. That goes back to the early church. For example, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 verses 40 through through 48, love your enemies and love your neighbor, as well as his striking demand of us in Matthew 20 verse 26, also Mark 10 verses 43 and 44, whoever would be great among you must be servant of all. I doubt the founders who started the Hard Rock Cafe nor the Seminole Indians of Florida who now own the restaurant chain are aware of the roots of their mission statement. it's so much become a part of the air we breathe. I'm reading a book right now that deals with this very thing, the distinctiveness, the unique, um, truly unique features and characteristics of early Christians. It's a book by Larry Hurtado. It's a, it's a, a dense history, titled Destroyer of the Gods, because Christianity and its impact was truly unique. The impact that it had, the contributions that it made, the things that uh, were distinctive, rare, but distinctive of early Christianity. Even in a culture of many gods, such as the Roman Empire, or even distinctive when compared with the heritage of Christianity and the Jews being rooted in the Old Testament. And one of the most important things that is striking to me in light of our look at Ephesians and what it has to say to us today is the oneness of Christians, because that oneness was built on Jesus Christ regardless of where you were born, what your heritage was, what your ethnicity, what your tradition. People of every stripe and distinction became one in the early church, and they were characterized by the love of Christ and this remarkable unity and oneness that set them apart. That's really what Paul is emphasizing here as he brings us to chapter 4. He has spent 1,061 words in preparing us for what we read At the beginning of chapter 4. 1,061, I counted them, in a manner of speaking. What I did was I took all the Greek words, cut out all the numbers and everything else, and I put it in a Word document, and boom, 1061 words. And now he's going to give us 70 words in the first six verses, but it's all grounded in this just majestic mountain range of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And it is because of that that he says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, This is a call to unity that is grounded in what Paul has revealed in 1,061 words starting at verse 3 all the way to the end of chapter 3 verse 21. And in that majestic mountain range there is a high peak in chapter 2 verse 14, right in the middle of chapter 2. You remember it, but let's look at it. In fact, let's take the time to read it again. For he himself, that is Jesus, for he himself has, is our peace, who has made us both one And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well then, as we know, in chapter 3, he moves into this glorious prayer that emphasizes the love that we know, that we experience in Jesus Christ. In fact, he prays that we would have the capacity to comprehend and fathom the love of God because that love is about rooting us, grounding us in Jesus Christ. And so he then slips from this wonderful prayer into these verses we just read. These 70 words in which he builds a bridge to the rest of his letter. And it begins with a call to unity that we would walk worthy of the oneness that we have in Christ that binds us together, that makes us a new humanity, a new creation as we saw in chapter 2 a third race, if you will. That's a high calling. And that unity is what he will go on to as we read on, Lord willing, next Sunday in verses 7 and following. Because as we see in verses 7 through 16, the aim, as he says, is until all of us come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and then in verse 16, that it, we might build ourselves up in love. This is echoing what he says in verse 3 here. That we should make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, this is a oneness that Christ has won for us that is the distinctive of the church. And we need to understand this because it is this oneness, this unity. That we have in Christ that the world needs desperately. We're so aware in these United States that we lack unity. We can call them the United States But they are not united. Our nation is not one. People are experiencing discord, anger, turning against one another. A Congress, Congress, which me, speaks of a unified body. A Congress is not Congress. It's divided. There's a big wide aisle of division. And I hate to disappoint you, but the Hard Rock Cafe does not love all and serve all. The reality is is that talk is cheap, and it can be inspiring, and we can wish upon a star. But the church is to be the reality because of the reality of Jesus Christ in your life and in mine. And when you put him first, when he is your Lord and he is my Lord, there is a oneness that triumphs triumphs over every conflict, every disagreement. What could possibly divide us if He is Lord? We may need to talk a while, we may need to sit down together, we may need to get to know each other better, but through that commitment, I mean how foundational is it if you call Him Lord and I call Him Lord? You surrender, I surrender, And that brings a peace and a oneness to us. And we do that because we love him. I can tell you, it really made a change in me. My biggest problem as a kid was, what about me? What about me? What about me? Sometimes we never outgrow that. We may not use those exact words, but that's a a rhythm, that's a riff in our lives. What about me? Where do I fit in? What about my considering me? What do I get? What's in it for me? How does it affect me? There's no place for the lordship of Jesus Christ in that attitude. And I found that I needed someone more important than me, that I trusted and was willing to serve, and that was Jesus Christ. Because it wasn't all about Him. He made it all about me. That's the gospel. That's the power of the gospel the love that Jesus Christ demonstrated when He made it all about you and not about Him. And because He made it all about you and He made it all about me, I can make it all about Him. Oneness is created by the love of Jesus Christ and it is to thrive And flourish in the church. And it is not only to thrive and flourish in the church, it's got to thrive and flourish in our hearts first. So we aren't waiting for the church to get on with it, we get on with it. We get on with it in our homes, we get on with it at work, we get on with it when we're in a car or in the market or whatever middle-class stuff we're doing. And we can give thanks that it isn't tougher yet because we live in this wonderful country of so many riches and so many protections, and all the stuff on our television is just on the television and not in our home yet. But the reality is, is it may not always be this way. And if we aren't walking for Christ now, and we can't handle this middle-class stuff, We're going to be blown away, literally like a breeze carried on the wind as a leaf. We're going to be blown away in our faith because we aren't working at the real stuff. But if you do, it's going to change your life and the lives of those in your life. And it's energizing because you bring to their lives love and kindness, perspective, perspective, because he's Lord. Not the president, not the Congress, not the movie stars, not anyone else. He's president of our lives. He makes the decisions. And because he made it all about me, I can make it all about him because I can trust someone who's made it all about me, so much so that he should leave so much to accomplish what in in a way seems so little because he loved me so much and he loves you so much. And if you get that by faith, you won't wait for anybody else. You'll be out in front. You'll be doing it whether anybody goes with you because it's just that inspiring. And it is what the world needs now as it has every day until now and will every day into the future. You may not be able to change it all, but you can make a difference where you are are at. And so, yes, oneness is worth our love. Oneness is worth our love. God's love is worth our love. In fact, that's the meaning of the word worthy. And that's what Paul says in verse 1. He wants us to walk worthy. And he's going to, in verses 2 and 3, ask us to walk this way. And then in verses 4, 5, and 6, to walk as one. Walk worthy. It's an interesting word. It's the word axios. We get our word axiom from it. It's uh, used with uh, weights and measures, and the notion is, is you're counterbalancing. So if something is really weighty, like God's love, the scale goes way up like that, see, because God's love is so weighty. But if we walk worthy, it's counterbalancing. In other words, we can't really offset the love of God, but if we walk worthy, we can show that His love has a great worth to us. And so we can be involved in what this word means, counterbalancing, weighing as much or of like value, worth as much as, or of equal weight. To be clear, Paul is not asking us to try and deserve God's love, but he is asking us to recognize God's love and how much it deserves from us in return. One writer said, we have a million-dollar salvation and a five-cent response. We have to up our game." because Christ is worthy, and Christ enables us. If God's love, Paul is saying, as he has said in the previous verses, but I'll put it in my own words, if God's love is so great, if his salvation is so powerful, if God has granted such reconciliation, then we should live accordingly. We should value God's love enough to be shaped by it. And so Paul says live, or literally, he says, walk. Walk worthy. Conduct your life in a way that shows the value of God's love in your life, his salvation in your life, his reconciliation in your life, his peace in your life. Walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And that calling is not a call that is designated for full time special ministry. This is a call to everyone in Christ, every person who names him Lord. That's our call. And it is a call, as I've tried to emphasize here, to be that new race of people by letting him be Lord. And then the oneness and unity emerging out of our mutual devotion to Christ. Living out our calling begins with thinking us and not just me. Us through Christ. Here's how we do it. Paul says walk this way in verses 2 through 3. Here are the kinds of things that maintain that maintain the unity of the Spirit. We live and walk and behave with, Paul says, all humility. All humility. I don't always do this, but I want to put up a few words for you. With all humility. This word humility is an interesting word because it, it means lowliness of thinking. It has to do with how you think. And you have a lowly way of thinking, and it's called humility, or translated humility. In the Greco-Roman world in which Paul was writing, for example, the Romans, they scorned This idea of humility because they considered it slavish. That is, the attitude or behavior of a slave. And a slave was the lowest of the low. The slave was less than a human being, if you will, in the way slaves could be treated. And yet Christians elevate this notion of humility or lowliness of thinking. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Turn with me just to to the right in your Bible. I'm turning one page and now I'm turning another and there I am. Philippians chapter 2. Look at the second chapter Now, here's the way Paul is writing to a Roman colony. These are people that have been raised Roman, okay? They take great pride in their Roman citizenship. In fact, in Philippians, Paul talks about citizenship quite a bit. And he says, hey, our citizenship is now in heaven. It's not in Philippi, it's in heaven. Now look at what he says here. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, oh, there's a whole lot of encouragement in Christ. If there is any comfort from love, oh, there is so much comfort from love. If there's any participation in the Spirit, boy, there's a ton of that. If there's any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being Now, pay attention here. Of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, being in oneness, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, and there's that word, in lowliness of thinking, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. You see, that's where it comes from, Jesus Christ. It was his mindset. Earlier, it may have been a little shocking when I said Jesus made it all about me. It's not because I'm so full of myself. That's just good theology, He set everything aside. He set set aside all of his honors, all of his privileges, all of his advantages. And he, well, that's what Paul goes on to say. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, an advantage to be taken advantage of. But emptied himself. He divested himself. He set all of that aside. It was not an obstacle. You know, sometimes to loving others, there are all kinds of little obstacles. It might cost too much. I might have to dig into my pocket. I might have to give them my time. I may have to change my schedule. I may have to associate with someone that I don't feel comfortable associating with. I may have to set aside my own interests and I might have to kind of lower myself. There are all kinds of things. You You can think of them as well as I can. You see, what is being said here is that we should do this. We should have one mind, see, because of Christ, because of all these riches of Christ, if there's any, 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 then have the same mind, the same fellowship of the Spirit, all this stuff, and then Set your own interests aside and put the interests of others ahead. Why? Because that's what Jesus did to you. He didn't let anything stand in the way. He emptied himself, he divested himself. It says, emptied himself by taking the form of a slave some translate servant. They just can't bring themselves to say the word slave, especially in our culture. But if you know the culture of the day, what was being said there is Jesus took the form of a slave, the lowest, lowest position in the culture, in the society. It it would be like if he visited us today, he would take the position of a homeless person, I mean, that would be something of an equivalent. He would would take the countenance, the appearance, the presentation of somebody living on the street. That's just, you know, obviously he didn't look like that, but that was the disposition, the mindset he took. And he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is a slave's punishment. Citizens of Rome do not go to the cross. There are other ways that they are killed with a higher sense of dignity. A cross was the worst, and it was reserved for those who were rebels against Rome and slaves. So when he says, humble yourselves, that's involved. That's the work of preparation for love. You know, when you think of the word repentance, it's such a kind of a old school church word, repentance, but it is a beautiful word, especially if you understand what happens in repentance. Because repentance comes from recognizing that you and I don't deserve the love that God has shown us. We don't deserve the forgiveness. And that repentance is a very humbling thing because in that repentance, we are we have the capacity to begin to appreciate the wealth of His grace and love. That is a prerequisite. If a person doesn't repent, it's kind of saying, hey, I think, you know, it was great what you did for me, Lord. I mean, I'm a pretty good person, so I didn't need that much. And you know what, if you don't need that much... Then you don't have that much to give. But when you realize what the Lord has done, when I look at my life, lo- if you probably do this too, when you take inventory, you just think everything, everything I am, I owe to you. All to Jesus. <laughs> How he's changed my life. I mean, I sometimes wonder if I would even still be alive. Every good thing in my life comes from Him. And it's out of that capacity of just complete gratitude. No no room for pride or personal achievements really when I get honest about it. All the people that have helped, all of you that have contributed, my wife that's contributed. But it's out of that, that humility, that lowliness of mind which is where I really am, that I I think I can set aside anything to try and love another person for Christ's sake. And that's what Paul's talking about, with all humility. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. i got to tell you, nothing dies harder than the desire to think first of yourself. And so the antidote is to think first of Christ. A second thing he says is with all gentleness, praitis. This is a word closely related to humility. It talks. I, I always think of a big, strong guy, maybe a burly, um, I don't know, logger. You know or somebody who works in a mine, or something like that, some rough-and-tumble guy who's got calluses on his hands, and we've just had a newborn baby, and he's visiting, and I say, would you like to hold my new baby? And yet that powerful, powerful guy with those rough hands, he has the strength under management, under control, to gently and delicately care for that brittle (laughs) fragile little baby that's gentleness it's a fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5.23 in Matthew 11.29 Jesus describes himself as gentle and humble in heart and with patience Macro thumia. Macro. We use the word macro. Micro, macro. Macro means large, broad. Thumia, here, if we think of it as largeness of heart. Because it is the largeness of our capacity to endure. And it's not just the idea of enduring, but it is how we endure. The word comes from the idea of a big soul. Someone said this last week, and I've heard it so many times in my life. I think I've said it probably a few times. God is teaching me patience that ability to endure that ability to wait to postpone gratification well we are able when we trust him patience comes through trusting him we're not just enduring we're pursuing something in love and really patience all of these qualities of character grow out of the love of God that has been shown to us and the love of Christ in our lives. Bearing with one another in love, to make the point. The word Bearing, we don't always say or use. It's kind of Bible language, but you could translate this most fittingly, putting up with. And that's probably a little closer to our experience, putting up with somebody. The word anecho means to hold up or hold with a certain strength. To put up with, to bear But he isn't just using it here like he uses it when he says in 1 Corinthians 4.12 of enduring persecution. He's talking about people. And he wants us to put up with people, not just with endurance, but with love. Because persecution is one thing and people are another. And here he's talking about agape love. Which always exists in relation to actual and specific people. You can think about love all you want, but love, agape love, only comes into existence when it's being shown to other people. This doesn't have its motivation in our, its origin in our motivation. It is out of God's love for us, that we love others. And Paul says, make every effort, spudazo, make every effort or eager, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The word uh, unity is oneness. It's built on the word one, just like our word. And he says, maintain, he uses a very strong word, "tevreo," which means to preserve or guard or to keep. We are to pursue with great energy, great eagerness, great conviction, a willingness to preserve the unity that is created by the work of Christ in us, the Spirit, the oneness that... He creates in the bond of peace. This last week, as it uh, just so happened, I was reading um, in some history of a long time ago, King Scylla, who was a Scythian king. That's up near the Black Sea area. And this was a long time ago because he had 80 sons. That's, that's just his sons. I'm, sh- I'm sure he had other wives, many wives. Can you imagine? I mean, no, it's not even impossible, is it? Anyway, let's move on, because that's just background to the big point. He had 80 sons, and he was nearing death, and his empire would be put into the hands of his sons. And so he had servants prepare spear shafts, bundles, of spear shafts, and the very word for bond is used here. He had them bound together, tied together. And then he asked his sons, and he gave each one a bundle, a bound, bundle of spear shafts. And he said, I want you to break these spear shafts. Oh, they tried and tried and tried and exhausted, They, they gave up. And then he took a bundle and he untied it. And one by one he took the shafts and broke them. All to illustrate that their harmony and unity is the strength of their empire. And without it, they will be weak and broken. And so it is in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. From chapter 2... What Jesus Christ did on the cross was to create oneness. It isn't just a happy derivative. It's at the center of our our evangelism, which goes back to the word gospel in the Greek word, evangelion, evangelism. The church is to be a light to the world of a new race, a new people that can only be created and exist in this unity and oneness through Jesus Christ. And that's why we are to live in oneness. Walk not only worthy this way, but as one. One body of these seven things that are all unified in verses 3 through 6, the very first, one body. That means one church, one spirit one hope, and then he repeats again, this is our calling, our destiny is in view. One Lord, which refers to Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, and it ends in this unity. And that's what we are to be in Jesus Christ. That takes place not by laws and uh, not by rules and not a lot of shoulds and musts it just it comes by your faith and mine when you make him Lord and you make him Lord and I make him Lord we will be bound together in a unity and it's worth our love because it is our most powerful witness to a world that is broken and will never know this unity except in Christ. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us, and I want to remind you after I say amen, I'll be here along with the pastoral staff, elders, their, their spouses. If you have been spoken to by the Lord this morning, you want us to intercede for you, or you are here to, with us, intercede for someone else, we invite you to come. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work of your Spirit in our lives. Ignite in our hearts a raging fire that is fanned and fueled by your love and your presence in our life through the Spirit, that we might live for you in such a way that your church would glow with the oneness that has been won for us in Jesus Christ, that the world may know. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, God bless you.